0: So this is the iconic photo of the operations room. It's a very interesting space. Um, This was the operations room for Project Cyberson. It was actually built. So this was, uh, it was located in downtown Santiago. And a prototype of the room, this actual room, um, reached completion at the end of 1972, the very end of 1972. Chile's socialist experiment was a moment of political innovation. This was the context of the Cold War, so you have the top-down socialism of the Soviet Union on one side, you have the democratic, government, economic capitalism of the United States on the other side, and in the middle you have countries like Chile that were trying to pioneer a third way. They wanted to know how can we keep civil liberties, how can we respect our constitution, How can we maintain a free press while simultaneously expanding the control of the state? So it was a really, it was an ambitious, beautiful project uh, that was put in place. The person at that time who was number three in the state corporation uh, that was in charge with nationalization, a man named Fernando Flores, um, decided, well, how are we going to do this? <laughs> how are we actually going to make this process work? And while Marx has you know, theories about how this works, a concrete reality of how you, what techniques you use, that, that's not there. He had learned of the writings of a British cybernetician named Stafford Beer, who had been applying cybernetic ideas to the management of uh, a firm. So in the context of looking at how you could run a company, um, so he had applied this, for example, to the management of a steel plant or the management of a publishing company, right? And so Fernando Flores thought, wow, I wonder if he'd be willing to send somebody from his consulting enterprise to come talk to us about how we might think of using cybernetics in the context of management. So Fernando Flores, you know, had somebody help him write the letter because his English was not so good, sent a letter off to Stafford Beer um, that said, we're interested in doing this with the economy. we are interested in applying cybernetic ideas. Would you be willing to send somebody to help us? And Stafford Beer received this letter and it was it was just this incredible moment. He had been he had been writing about how you might use cybernetics in the context of political change. This had been what he had been writing on in, in this moment. and here there is a young government official, high-level government official that is saying to him, "Please come." please come to our country and apply these ideas that that you've been working on. And so Beer took that insight and applied it to the design of the Cybernetic Factory, he applied it to the design of his system for regulating the Chilean national economy. And working with a small team of Chilean engineers, they came up with an approach that would become Project Cybersyn that was social as well as technical and would provide a way For the government to increase its control over the national economy right it would give them greater access to the production data as it was being generated Um, but it also would preserve a degree of autonomy and a number of the people who came into positions of power during that time were very young so fernando flores at this time he was in his late 20s and he had you know this tremendous position of power to actually do things so the utopian vibe of the politics opened up possibilities for technological experimentation uh, in terms of technological innovation um, that few governments would have been in a position to, to even attempt.
1: They were designing this technology, mm-hmm. which was completely innovative, you had think? never been seen in a world. Um, was it a neutral
0: technology? So it was a technology that was configured with within an organization and to facilitate certain kinds of communication and exchange within an organization, right? It was to encourage certain kinds of human practices and to enable certain kinds of participation. Now perhaps it's a philosophical question as to if you got rid of that but moved the technology over if it's the same exact system. I would argue that it's not. And I think something that we often lose when we talk about technology is that situated, contextualized aspect of how technology works. So I would say, no, it's not not neutral at all. The way the system developed was in this context and the social relationships that were key to the system were also fundamental to the functioning of that
1: system. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 34 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy as always. And uh, this week we've got I'm just I think we just have to get right into it because we've got a really action packed show um, on a on a really important and interesting topic. We're gonna be looking at some of the cybernetic experiences and experiments in, in uh, economic planning, cyber, digital, socialism. That's what we're going to be focusing on today. It's a, it's a huge topic with just a lot of like rich historical, theoretical, uh, practical kind of aspects to it. It, it. It's all kind of playing into Um, this raging debate called the socialist calculation debate that's been going on largely in in kind of economics and and economic theory, um, like like largely between the kind of like Austrian schools of economics, this kind of like uh, proto-neoliberalism, the Chicago school, this kind of like neoclassical rational actor theory shit, uh, and then like you know, different strains of Marxism and socialism really interesting but also I think more so than interesting like really really crucial for helping us think through what would it look like to organize a planned economy to organize an economy that was uh you know not just given over to the free hand of the market which as we'll get into is bullshit anyways uh mm-hmm. but is more so you know consciously directed in a way that um, takes into account things like democratic participation, takes into account things like the interest of workers over capital, takes into account things like the, the necessities uh, for people to live For people to 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 thrive, um, for people to actually have and experience and exercise autonomy and freedoms of a of a wide variety uh, of types. I mean, the the economy is immensely important for that, and we're we're seeing now over over 2020 uh, the the downfalls of not having. Um, a planned economy, of having an economy that is well planned in the sense that it's planned for and by corporations acting in partnership with the state uh, in order to, um, on one hand, immiserate people, and on the other hand, just abandon them, right, throw them to the wolves. This is not the way things have to be. There are alternative possibilities for for imagining a different economy, but more so than imagining an alternative, we have historical precedents and experiments uh, of socialist innovations to look back on and and things that we need to learn from. Here's here's our little structure for for this episode and the the premium episode later this week, because like I said, we've, we've got a lot to get through. So this is gonna be a really interesting but packed uh, duo of episodes So for this one our goal our plan is to uh, really start with one of these major experiments. you might have heard of Project Cyberson you know happened happening in the early 70s in Chile with the rise of Salvador Allende's Popular Unity Party, um, a, a, a democratic socialism government that came in with really ambitious plans, but also a popular mandate to completely reconfigure the way the economy is structured and organized. And Project Cybersyn as this kind of experiment for how to use uh, cutting edge cybernetic technologies, computational technologies uh, to, to, to do this, to help organize and structure an entire economy of industries and interest and goods and services. So we'll, we'll start off with that. And, and from there, we'll kind of transition into um, laying out what is this neoliberal critique of socialist planning, which has been largely successful in terms of like discrediting um, something like centralized planning or something like a socialist economy, discrediting these ideas, taking them off of the table. Uh, but this isn't new, right? Like this debate has been raging um, for a for hundred years now in, in a really serious way. And I think that'll kind of bring us to the end of the free episode. Now you're gonna wanna stick around for the premium episode, which you can find on patreon.com slash this machine kills, because that's where we're going to really get into some of the really exciting work around uh, what comes next, right? Like what kind of new systems and protocols for a socialist economy are available to us because as we'll get into with like project cybersyn it's really been held up as this grand experiment because it really was um, unprecedented at the time and still kind of unprecedented right now but they were doing this shit with like technologies like like early age computational technologies early age theories around planning and cybernetics stuff that now we, we have the we have the kind of computational technology in our pockets that far exceeds uh, what Chile and Allende's government were having to to kind of put together. In the premium episode, we're going to really look into and tackle um, with reference to some exciting and uh, and important contemporary work around what what are these new systems and protocols for a socialist economy in the 21st century. So that's our kind of, Basic structure, our plan, and I think we should just dive right into Project CyberSyn. I'm, I'm going to throw it over to Ed. What, where did CyberSyn emerge? out of what kind of context was it happening? the time period, all that shit?
2: CyberSyn is this you know really interesting birth child, you know is that the, is that the phrase for it? love child, that's what it is, (laughs) of of Chilean government, specifically, you know, the election of Salvador Allende uh, in Chile, um, and his attempts to, you know, realize socialism, one of the core planks and paths of that being, you know, the nationalization of a lot of key industries inside of the country, but also the need to centrally manage and organize production um, and distribution of resources in ways outside of you know traditional capitalist markets. A team comes in around you know in the early 70s in 1971 to 73, all led in part by this uh, you know British consultant, you know uh, cybernetics scholar uh, Stafford Beer, to try and you know structure a new technological system. with project Cybersyn, you know, cybernetic synergy. Um, and, you know, the idea here was that they would try to, you know, in real time display inside of uh, operations room, you know, as the first, you know, sort of implementation, but, you know, ideally in a system that could be replicated elsewhere, duplicated, you know, real time display of, You know, ongoing production data. You know, looking at the you know behavior of dynamic systems of social, biological, and technical systems. Looking at historical and statistical information. uh, Figuring out ways to closely network and interface computers and any sort of other digital technology. This project is both like an ambitious one and also one that was, I think, contained right by some of the realities at the time, which is like you know, for example, the massive nationalization. You know. uh, campaign that, you know, Allende was going on, uh, resulted in the country, you know, the government, you know, running on cash and supplies, right, because the United States, you know, and other Western powers are trying to uh, undermine this, you know, through markets at first and then violence later. Um, So, you know, in this sort of room, right, you know, the operations room where you have, you know, the ability to view uh, real-time information, but also historical information, right, Um, was an attempt to, you know, minimize the amount of screens and computers you might have because computers were scarce and expensive so that they could, you know, at once show up, you know, diagrams and figures and blueprints uh, and and all sort of information you might need and, you know, about production called the data feed, right. But also that allowed, you know, information to be drawn up there to then be copied and transcribed physically, right? Because of the shortage of screens and other sort of digital equipment that they would need for this operation. So in this, you know, is the dream, the idea that this new system is going to be able to allow and establish new communication channels where we can transmit that data from productive facilities to the government, right? Uh, The government running these productive facilities and that it can then be fed into statistical software programs that will anticipate or predict, you know, future factory performance and enable the Chilean government to identify and head off crises before they come to pass. And as well as have like a sort of computerized economics uh, simulator, right, which would allow policymakers an opportunity to experiment or test, you know, various ideas before implementing them. And that, you know, on top of all of this was a proposed system that would create, you know, futuristic operations room that we were, you know, I was just talking about where you have the ability for policymakers, you know, interested parties to come in quickly, assess what's going on in the economy, assess what's going on in the dynamic systems uh, that they're supposed to be managing through the cybernetic system and quickly, you know, respond or anticipate what's going to happen. You know, at the time, there was you know, a crazy experiment <laughs> at the time to now. go on. You know, there were fears. There was a lot of hysteria at the time about whether or not this meant the country was going to be controlled by a computer, you know, if that's if, if that was the path that, uh, you know, Chile was going on at the time. I think that, you know, some people on the team were speculating that this might, you know, radically change the way that Chileans relate to each other socially, but that that could be a positive, you know, to help realize socialism, to help, you know, get past some of the, the ways individuals relate to each other, to commodities, to their labor, to their, you know, to the collectives they belong to inside of a capitalist system, but are antithetical to a socialist uh, system. Um, you know, I think one example is, you know, they saw the system as a way where instead of having uh, the traditional absolutist structure of corporate uh, systems where it's didacts that come down from top to the bottom, you have workers more integrated and and participating in the factory and its management right which i think of course you know empowers and you know empowers the work uh, workers inside of a workplace democratizes it and and also grows you know the idea was grows a sense of you know responsibility or uh you know and, ownership and, and, really owner, right yeah you know and that that carries on outside of the workplace right the idea if you can take Part in something as important as production and the management of the economy, right? Then the that opens up the doors for the political system, you know, for you're organizing things in your own neighborhood, in your own community, in the state at large, um, in ways that are lo- locked off because a part of where you spend so much of your life, the workplace, is uh, you know operates as like a private tyranny,
1: essentially. And we should definitely you know mark up front as well that uh, a, lot of, a lot of what we're going to be talking about with Project Cybersyn uh, is drawn from uh, Eden Medina's excellent book, um, which is a history of Cybersyn called Cybernetic Revolutionaries. We'll throw a link to this in the, in the episode notes. Highly recommend everybody pick it up and read it. it, it it's just a really, really well done and thorough um, and well told of history of technology here and i mean her work on on cybersyn like this was a lot of what i know about cybersyn comes directly from this book and from her work um on it she she was really paved a lot of ground here for kind of like re digging up um reinvigorating and telling the history of uh, this technology. And in fact, in the cold open, you guys heard some clips from an interview with Ida Medina, where she was kind of uh, explaining the purpose and the history of Cybersyn. So just, you know, really big shout out to uh, Medina's work on on this.
2: Yeah, you know, because I think it really flushes out like how serious of an undertaking this was and how potentially, you know, you know, revolutionary it would have been, mm. right? You know, it's not simply again it's not simply just production right they're also thinking like can we manage the social systems right you know there was a part of this operations wall that was reserved for a project where they would try to you know track happiness right of the entire country in decision in reaction to decisions that they made inside of the operations room you know i think of the happiness index or whatever that is today developed and used but it's more or less a, it's more or less like something that, that tracks closely to um Standard of living of a of a place right versus you know you know other ways we can measure happiness are people feeling like you could have a high standard of living but are you being discriminated against Mm -hmm. do you have control over the decisions that you get to make about your own body about your own life you know the workplace your community you know your family um are you satisfied with the way that things are going do you like or do you feel that you're contributing in one way or another i mean there are a whole host of you know, things that are outside of the market that give people happiness. Current metrics may, you know, try to track or attempt to track through economic, you know, measures, but don't track the way that, you know, Project Cyberfolk, which is the name of this Chilean attempt to do so, would have, right? You know, uh, the, the, the British consultant um, and his team had tried to build, you know, something that was go- essentially going to be like a device that we'd put in every home, right? And this would allow people to, you know, like a dial, you know, tell whether they were extremely unhappy to, you know, you know, in bliss, (laughs) essentially, Mm. right. And that, you know, this information would then be put into a network, which would then also be projected into the operations room, right, so that at any given time. You could have a good idea of what the happiness would be, and I think that th- that this is also like an interesting idea, right? Part of the the destruction of Cybersyn, as we'll talk about has nature's lost, right? We track very closely, or try to approximate very closely, all sorts of things, right? But if you were to suggest that we should like put a device into every home to track people's happiness, we'd be, you know, laughed at. But we already tell ourselves that we're doing that with other sorts of devices that that's
1: what the Apple. amazon halo is all about <laughs> babe, <laughs> you know right? yeah
2: right what the fuck you know why why does amazon get to put a goddamn wristband when it already has speakers and hundreds of millions of homes and then that's okay right that's fine in fact that is that is a sign of the market working and everybody getting <laughs> Jeremy saying, Don't check, tone check me. They're gonna tone check you, right? They'll, t- if you talk about CyberSyn, actually, the halo shocks you. And then, uh, they, <laughs> and then a drone comes in, uh, to help uh, you realign your reactionary thought with, um, you know, Amazon, uh, you know, thought with Amazon, um, you know, socialism with uh, Amazon characteristics. I mean, that's why they have the smiley face as their logo, right? It's interesting to see the divide between, you know, Cyberson's attempts, right, to manage production, to manage human beings, not in a sort of herd and cattle sense, but like, if we're going to have a society, like, let's make sure that we're doing things that help, that make people happier versus like, let's look at the outcomes and figure out how we can maximize uh, the production of something or the arbitrary availability of a product or a good, right, or the price of something, you know, I think that there's something to be said about like this rejection of specifically focusing on the... Monetary value, or the uh, economics, or the economic outcomes, and I think that that is part of why, you know, there was also a pretty vicious, you know, backlash to this, right? That you know, a fight against the idea that you can use technology to try to transcribe in real time how people are feeling, what they're doing, what they're what they're interacting with each other, you know, create this sort of historical text and get a good view of what's going on at that time, the context of which it's going on, how to use that information to predict future events, how to use that information to replicate certain events. You know, this idea of control is, I think should be thought of as like a different, it's radically different, right? Than domination, right? You know, Stafford offers a a definition himself. He says, you know, controls self-regulation or the ability of a system to adapt to internal and external changes and survive control through homeostasis rather than through domination gives the system greater flexibility and facilitated adaptation therefore these this alternative idea of control you know this homeostatic machine for regulating itself that beer talked about i think is a better way to understand command economies right the idea of an, a mm. command economy is not to dominate resources to conquer scarcity to marshal, you know, in very military, you know, militaristic terms, uh, reality, but to create a system that is sustainable, and that regulates itself, and that can grow, if need be, but that is with, you know, the way that one might, you know, steward a garden, Right, you know, or help grow, you know, a biological system. When we grow biological systems, when we grow farms, ideally, if they're not like industrial agriculture, when we grow gardens, you know, we understand that there's a process of which you have to expand it outwards and not exhaust, you know, the other, you know, parts of the uh, ecosystem. Right, whereas with, you know, an economic system. I don't think that same sort of concern is there and that ends up tainting how we organize social and biological systems and ecological systems and technological systems and then those become about domination right mm-hmm. when the when you know control societies or co- control economies are about you know homeostasis
1: yeah and I mean these are some really excellent distinctions that you're drawing here as well cuz we can really see you know on the surface level we can look at something like Project CyberSim, which you know, as you as you were laying out, right, has built inside of it these theories of cybernetics, right? And cybernetics was really this kind of science of control, right? Control and behavior. So it was really looking at. Uh, you know how, how do we design systems that can act in these kind of self-regulating, self-governing ways that can take in data um, from their environments and process that environment and kind of respond in in real time ways to kind of get to this homeostasis point, right? And homeostasis here being a kind of an equilibrium, right? Where to, to as a way to kind of avoid um, crises, as a way to uh, avoid radical volatility, um, all kinds. All all the kinds of things that we see um, as defining features in a modern capitalist society, right? Where right. it's all about volatility and it's all about crisis. And, mm-hmm. and homeostasis is really about trying to control those variables, those dimensions, um, so that you can then direct a system towards uh, the kinds of ends that you want, right? And I, and I think this is one of the ways that like Cybersyn was so ahead of its time Is that like the theories of technopolitics that were involved in the design of of this system were radically anti-capitalist, right? They on the surface level, again, they they might look like the same kinds of technologies, but but they weren't, right? They weren't because they were um, they were coming out of radically different conditions and contexts. They were being built for radically different ends and purposes than you know something like. Amazon's Halo or Amazon's Panorama um, and Monotron you know, factory system, which in a lot of ways is a cybernetic system for like automating factories, for automating production and distribution, for automating the exploitation of labor. But Cybersyn, you know, fifty years ago had these radical ideas of democratization of technology of innovation that we talk about on TMK all the time and they they were they were thinking about these things not only in theoretical ways um, and really kind of uh, uh, nuanced um, and deep theoretical ways but also like literally putting it into practice in a system so you know for example from the very beginning Project members from uh, Cybersyn argued that, you know, as Ida Medina puts it, quote, argued that workers should participate in the creation of these models um, and thus in the design of this technology and in economic management at the national level. So already right there, they're thinking about, you know yeah we've we've got cyber sim but it's also not super centralized as well and this is a point we'll get into as well where they were really setting themselves up against not only the kind of capitalist corporate managerial model of this really kind of like top down um, of the vol- of volatility of uh, this the, of the, the kind of like capitalist command economy that we see, they were also quite explicitly setting themselves apart from um, the Soviet command economy as well, which was also hyper centralized, um, hyper hierarchical um, in the way that it set quotas and set prices and distributed resources and all that. Ayende's vision of democratic socialism was a highly participatory one so you know medina says again quote beer's ideas of management cybernetics resembled the chilean approach to democratic socialism The government wanted change to occur within a democratic framework and in a way that preserved civil liberties and respected dissenting voices. Chilean democratic socialism, like management cybernetics, thus wanted to find a balance between centralized control and individual freedom. That's that homeostasis again, right? Mm -hmm. Wanting to find that equilibrium point between having the power of centralized control over the economy While also allowing individual freedom. And the way that they did this was through a highly uh, complex but powerful kind of feedback mechanism as well, where, you know, like workers on the ground could provide input into the the kind of centralized cybernetic system while also receiving outputs and, and be able to respond and adapt accordingly, right? There there is a lot of this again, feedback is a really crucial idea in cybernetics. Um, where there needs to be this communication, this constant kind of back and forth, this dialogue between different parts of the system, different networks, right? And again, this isn't that command and control idea of like, like an IoT system um, that's receiving commands from some centralized AI or, or or computer or operations room and thus just acting accordingly. That feedback was a, a two-way street that they were feeding into and receiving um, and helping to co-shape. I think that like that is a really important aspect here to kind of set this technology apart from, on one hand, its capitalist versions, which we largely live with now, right? Like these systems didn't die with Project Cybersyn. They just became, uh, in in many ways, uh, uh, appropriated by digital capitalism, by corporate capitalism, Mm -hmm. while also set apart from that Soviet model, which was um, highly command-oriented.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really key point, you know? Like, you know, there are... You know, as a sort of side step, there are like really clear ties, I think, between the destruction that would come later of cyber sin. Obviously, a coup comes in. You know, the far right takes power. You know, the neoliberals got you know Chile, but you know they got to do something with the computers, right? And that, in fact, not only do they have to do something with the computers, specifically in cyber sin, right, but that Washington provides computers and, you know, allows Chile to, and the right wing dictatorships they establish, you know, to try to you know, modernize and instead of using, you know, getting this silly idea in their head that they should, you know, improve the human element of society or try to, you know, cater to that specifically instead of the economic, they get, they tell them that really what you got to do is you got to modernize and professionalize your intelligence services. This is like, you know, if you're interested in reading more about this um, and you're listening, there's a good essay by Greg uh, Gandon, um in The Nation called The Anti-Socialist Origins of Big Data, where he talks about You know, Allende's Project Cybersyn is, we can think of as like the socialist origins, but like the capitalist origins, we can see, you know, we can draw a link from, you know, Uber's algorithmic overseers and Amazon's anticipatory shipping, you know, straight to like when they came into uh, Chile and dismembered Cybersyn, but took part of the... You know, the, the animus of wanting to take large amounts of information about daily life and using them to optimize the human side of a society to instead hyperlink everything so that consumption can run rampant and that the economy can then be dominated, you know, largely by orientation towards services and production of services and, pro- and prov- provision of services, as opposed to happiness, you know, or um, worker control.
1: Yeah, the the example of Uber, which we go back to again and again, is, is mm-hmm. extremely apt here as well because that is also a cybernetic system, right? Yeah. It's a mm-hmm. system that's based on on feedback and control, but control again, not in the way that beer was explicitly against control as domination. This is a this is a corruption of yeah. that kind of of Beer's vision of cybernetics and a corruption of the originator of cybernetics was this guy Norbert Wiener, who you know created it in military context, but then very quickly um, recoiled from the ways that it was being used by the military, and instead devoted his life towards trying to. To help like labor unions, right trying to warn against um, the ways in which like Detroit companies were trying to automate uh, the car factories right like like mm-hmm. he also had this idea very much like beer, that cybernetics was a revolutionary technology but, a rev- but but a revolutionary technology in a socialist sense right rather than what it has become, which is a revolutionary technology in a capitalist sense, um, and we can see. Mm-hmm the the kind of uh, uh, the actual origins of this management cybernetics even in the ways that like Beer named his systems right like early mm-hmm. on um, he conceived of this uh, technological system for government administration that he called the Liberty Machine you know yeah. just mm-hmm. just really putting it <laughs> right there in the name that this is a machine for liberty this is a machine to liberate people.
2: There's some background on beer is, you know, this is a man who uh, lived a life of luxury, right? Because he, uh, he was a consultant. You know, he's a former executive at a you know, U.S. Steel and was supposed to come to Chile to bring socialism. You know, think of, think in your head of the of a typical, like a British, you know, a British capitalist chomping on cigars, uh, driving around in Rolls Royces, Bags of money under the the mattress, probably. That is the dude. That is the dude who was like, "All right, actually, we need a society that is based on on self regulation as opposed to perpetual growth." Um, which is also is always a little weird and funny. Uh, story. Yeah, when people hit these
1: kind of like like revelation moments Mm -hmm. as well, when they kind of wake up. I'm the parasite. (laughs) <laughs> yeah oh shit like like all these technologies that i've been doing because i just have like an intellectual interest in them or put into and like i'm you know i'm making money hand over fist on it but god i'm looking at the way they're being used and i'm looking at the people using them and the world that's being created by them and that shit sucks you know <laughs> there's a great uh point in eden medina's book which I think sums it up really well, where she says, quote, Beer described quite clearly the intellectual thrill produced by the Chilean invitation to come set up Project Cybersyn. Beer said, quote, I had an orgasm. <laughs> like like it, was the, it was what he was waiting for was this oh opportunity because they didn't even they didn't even expect beer, who was like this famous consultant in Britain to come over. One of the the really young engineers, I think he was like in his late 20s or something, Flores um, in Chile, who was kind of put in charge of, you know, creating this like Ocean's Eleven skunk works, <laughs> like, you know, team for Project Sim, mm-hmm. was like, I've been reading this stuff. Um, by this guy who's a British consultant. And I like his I like his ideas. He's got this book called The Brain of the Firm. Like it's some really interesting shit. Like uh, he had one of his friends or assistants or somebody kind of help him write this English letter because his English wasn't so good uh, and sent it over to this consultant. And then like very quickly, uh, Beer got back to him and was like, I'm on a flight over there right <laughs> <Yeah>. now. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just like,
2: I think again highlights just the real, as we've talked about how imagination has narrowed, you know, under, under the tyranny of capitalism, right? It's soul crushing, really mechanical exactness, exactness with like narrowing our ability to imagine other worlds. Can this dude at the time They hit him up with this letter and he probably saw it, you know, he probably in his head saw it and nutted because you're just like, oh my God, we can do, you know, we can, we can realize what I've been talking about. Whereas now it feels as if those sort of avenues, it feels as if they're closed off, right? Even if they may or may not be because of how thorough the discrediting has been. I mean That's god right. damn I can't imagine what what kind of letter would make me not in my pants <laughs> <laughs> from some like bureaucrat in another country <laughs> Hey, we're building like a, I don't know like another EZLN in like I don't know in China
1: or in India <laughs> I don't know we're building an anarchist uh and we're, we're starting an up we're starting <laughs> a a Luddite task force yeah and, actually uh... <laughs> we're, we we we
2: we have a mission. Should you choose to accept it, and it's just like a <laughs> massive holographic display of Jeff Bezos's secret moon colony. You know, that's that's <laughs> some just, shit.
1: <laughs> just smashing that yes button. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm yeah. On, I'm on a ship. Beer, beer's you know uh, idea did the Liberty Machine which Eden uh, Medina describes as, quote, the liberty machine distributed decision-making across different government offices, but also required all subordinate offices to limit their actions so as not to threaten the survival of the overall organization, in this case, a government. Beer posited that such a liberty machine could create a government where competent information is free to act, meaning that once government officials became aware of a problem, they could address it quickly. Expert knowledge, not bureaucratic politics, would guide policy. Beer envisioned that the physical liberty machine would consist of a series of operation rooms, which we've talked about, that received real-time information from the different systems being monitored and then used computers to distill the information content. So again, that is what we were talking about before of that kind of like that network, right? Where it's like, it's not just um, all of the, the smaller government offices leading to the individual worker just had to take these commands. It was a communication here. It was about trying to, not only increase autonomy at all different levels, but all, but to coordinate as well. I think it's best to understand this again in contrast to that centralized planning that was found in the Soviet Union at the time. So uh, Medina says again, quote, Allende's articulation of socialism stressed a commitment to decentralized government with worker participation and management, reinforcing his professed belief in individual freedoms. You know, yet he, would, he also acknowledged that in the face of political plurality, the government would favor the interest of those who made their living by their own work, and that revolution should be brought about from above with a firm guiding hand. What do we see in, a, in, a, in the way that the economy is planned right now? Um, in, in, in the face of political plurality, we see a government that favors the interest of those who own the means of production, who own other workers, who own their time and labor. This is the exact inverse, Allende's vision of democratic socialism, which not to throw shade at the DSA, but is a is a radically uh, different vision of this isn't social democracy in that Scandinavian model, right, of like a good welfare state. This is democratic socialism in the sense that it's an economy that has worker autonomy and participation and ownership over the management of industries and factories built into it from the very beginning. And that was the purpose of Cyberson was to actually realize these social relations in a technical system.
2: Right. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's, that's why I did orgasm, you know, that's why <laughs> it happened.
1: And I think, you know,
2: this idea of the Liberty machine, you know, sitting at the center, this whole network, you know, is really, an interesting thing to think about just in like such direct contrast to our, you know, a bureaucratic state, right? Or a state that is like bureaucratic in some parts and then other, in other parts, just kind of like a vehicle for, you know, oligarchs, whoever holds the administrative state enough money. Um, where it's, you know, like the Liberty machine, you know, beer imagined would you know, have these computers doing the, the real time networks, then the, you know, the rapid flows of information, all this to help, you know, is, you know, essentially guide, you know, the evolution, I guess, of the society or, you know, in theory, could guide the, the evolution of society Whereas what we have today feels very much of, you know, there's a lot of work meant to preserve stasis and prevent like radical breaks or changes and to, you know, at an acceptable rate, repair older aging sagging, crumbling infrastructure in the literal physical world, but also just in the bureaucracy itself. You know, a lot of it is like weird self-regulation on its own, but not of like the society, the human relations of happiness, but of just like the bureaucracy and like the agency and autonomy of like patrons of the state or, you know, wealthy, you know, oligarchs who use the state as a vehicle for their own interests.
1: Yeah, and we'll get into this when we when we dive into the kind of like neoliberal critiques of planning as well. But the professed dynamic and innovative system that capitalist is meant to be, we see in reality that the the overriding experience of capitalism for the vast majority of people is one of stagnation. Right. Yeah. This, we talked about this last week with the Chinese concept of involution. Right. Mm-hmm. Where like the, the only thing that's dynamic is this sense that like uh, competition is always increasing, that extraction and exploitation is always intensifying. But for people uh, who are feeding into it even more of their time and energy and labor and their, their life itself, um, what they experience in return is stagnation and uh, dreams deferred, right? They don't experience right. that progress that the neoliberals, uh, the neoliberal theorists, said that were, was the defining feature of capitalism, and that something like socialist planning could never actually achieve or approximate.
2: And it's also really interesting, just like the way in which other, you know, models for cybernetics operated. You know, there's the Christian Democrats with their like attempt to do giant expensive computers, right? There's the Soviet model with you know centralization where you have to monitor what like 50 million variables, which you can't do with four computers um, <laughs> in the 1970s. But also there's an ideological division, right, in which like you know the democratic socialist project that Ayende was pushing, as you talked about is different in that it's, it's still an attempt, it's still a compromise where they they're they're prioritizing individuals and their in, and you know individual freedom and agency uh, and as a compromise saying that you know we'll we'll have governance that comes from above and like managers and shepherds, the revolution or, or the realization of the revolution. But there are also some other things that like we're gonna be inflexible on like the structure of the economy or the structure of social relations that I think was a good also happened to be just like as a quirk of history, like a good thing that attracted Beer to it, right? Because Beer was interested in cybernetics management in the Soviet Union, but was disgusted by it in his account because he thought that it was way too bureaucratic, way too complex, and way easy to manipulate, to, you know, to fabricate. Numbers or information or data, and that factory managers and you know government bureaucrats, they could take some input and change it, submit it to the centers, uh, you know, and and use it to try to paint themselves in a more favorable way. And that that is a huge problem. You know, the theory. This, if you're going to have an alternative theory of control where you have self-regulation and homeostasis as key, you need to be having you know the elements of this system operating as they normally would, you cannot have party politics still playing a role in how data is getting transmitted to the system. That's just going to result in in a fake illusory production of results. And then you're going to do the wrong, you're going to respond to reality that's not even real, right? If you're responding to data that's fake, then you're going to just compound the problem over and over again, which I think was also his read of, you know, why the Soviet Union's uh, command economy did not succeed because it did not align with his theory of control.
1: Yeah, that the the ways in which Beer uh, and Allende wanted to create a system based on values of decentralization, worker participation, anti-bureaucratic anti-bure- is so interesting as well. You know, Beer talked about um, how this system Project Cybersyn needed to be more than just a toolbox for technocratic management which is what mm. we see in like the Soviet Union It's what we talk about a lot on TMK with the ways in which you know like the techno utopians and the venture capitalists and 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 corporations want to have this kind of more technocratic management instead he he was convinced that Cybersyn needed to to start by creating social relationships that were consistent with those political ideals of the Allende government, of decentralization, worker participation, anti-bureaucracy. And this this stands in stark contrast um, to, to the ways that we talked about and targeted this concept of innovation last week as well, which you know it as a fetish works to extract the technology from social relations, from politics, from history. This vision of socialist innovation that Allende and Beer and the Cybersyn team were really uh, invested in was one that was innovation with and for politics, right? It, It started from a political point, And then it said, what does the system need to look like? Rather than starting with the technology and saying, all right, we've got the technology. Now, how do we organize society around this technology? It's the exact inverse idea of what innovation means. And, you know, as I was rereading Eden Medina's book for for this episode, it was like one of the first times in a long time that, you know, in reading about a technology, uh, in reading about innovation, i I was i wasn't angry i was excited you know Mm. i was like this sounds fucking dope as hell right because it's built on good politics it's built on you know on on laudable values and it it, and it's built in such a way um that it, it like recognizes the the conditions it's coming out of and the the kind of society it wants to help um create and usher in you know, it was it was honestly I was like, oh, OK, so this is what the venture capitalists feel like when they're get when they're looking at the pitch decks for startups and shit. Right. Where where they're looking at, you know, these technologies that promise to create a society um, that's molded and shaped in their image that that just benefits them. This this is the kind of excitement that they feel like and the kind of a- anger that it arises in, in us. Um, all, you know, just completely inverted in in reading about cyber sin.
2: I think it's also you know in reading about cyber sin, really interesting also to see the ways in which they're they were anticipating. I think things that still become or are still problems today, right? Because we chose, or not that we chose, because the CIA chose, um, <laughs> you know, to go down a certain or to close off a certain door. Then help drive the way for a certain type of technological development, right? Where as they, as he said, you know, special attention will be paid to the development of man-machine interfaces, prioritizing the user and human understanding over like tech flashiness and sleekness, right? And going on to say the operations room should be thought of not as a room containing interesting bits of equipment, but as a control machine comprising men and artifacts in symbiotic relationships. It needs designing as a totality and as an operational entity, right? Instead of maybe having a system where it's cool the way in which you can present the data and it's cool the way in which it looks and that obscures its real function, which is not to prioritize the human, not to prioritize what their own needs and desires may be, but to you know, in our world, uh, to just pull that information out and help the firm behind it. i process it in a way that will help create more products, more goods, more services. You know, that is nightmare scenario to come out mm-hmm. of cyber sin, where you would want, you can have gotchy looking things, you can have kitsch looking things, you have campy looking things. It doesn't really fucking matter, right? Because it doesn't matter what the tech actually looks like, right? The tech is not the, is not the thing you know, the humans are the thing, right? We are, this is in service of humans constructing a system that will allow them to live better, like full stop, instead of having a thing that is attractive enough to humans for them to live with it, right, and need it and consume off of it or through it or with it, which is the path that we've ended up careening down, I think.
1: You know, we talk about how beer was so excited in this and he, he was really he really did kind of get caught up in some of the revolutionary fervor around not only project cyberson's potential but but the potential of the um, Allende government's vision of democratic socialism there's a great little anecdote in Ida Medina's book as well where Um, Beer proposed that uh, Allende would inaugurate the control room, which was the kind of symbolic heart of the project, you know, this really central aspect of the control room. Everyone should look up a picture of it. We'll use that as the image art. Um, on SoundCloud, but look up a picture of the Project Cybersyn control room. It, it is truly iconic. I'm sure you've seen it before. Um, but Beer you know, even drafted a, a sample speech for Allende to deliver at the inauguration event, which unfortunately um, would never be given because the, the military coup that ended Allende's life and ended this dream. You know, And the speech contained, uh, as Medina says, such sentiments as, quote, uh, we set out courageously to build our own system in our own spirit. What you will hear about today is revolutionary, not simply because this is the first time it has been done anywhere in the world. It is revolutionary because we are making a deliberate effort to hand to the people the power that science commands in a form in which the people can use it. Venture.
0: Venture.
1: that right there yeah just snapping (laughs) at that right for you know for beer the the revolution was not only about the nationalization of industry or increasing the public welfare obviously highly important aspects of it but was about changing the very organization of society beginning with The government institutions themselves, you know, Medina says, quote, cybernetics, the science of effective organization could therefore be as powerful as a gun in affecting revolutionary change. And what they mean by that is that it was a system that was meant to help create a socialist society. Um, socialist relationships, right? We live in a society now that's dominated by capitalist relationships. You know, socialism is not just about tweaking around the edges of capitalism, not just about doing some mods on capitalism. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, that that's not that's not what it's about. It it has to be about envisioning what different social relations and different political relations would look like under socialism. And, that, and that's what they were really envisioning with this system. Obviously, I think that you know, Project Cybersyn, it got smothered in its cradle really early by Pinochet's counter-revolutionary military coup. So it was a prototype, right? That means that we don't have that history of what it would have looked like if it had actually been really up and running. Uh, fully operational, how it could have operated, we we can't fool ourselves into thinking that it, it's not going to be a perfect system. It, you know, nothing's going to be perfect. It might not live up to some of the ideals, some of this kind of revolutionary rhetoric that Beer and Allende um, and the Cybersyn team kind of had in mind with it. it. It might not have lived up to that, but at the same time, I don't think that, and this reminds me of what we talked about with real utopias um, in an in a episode a few weeks ago, right? I see Project Cybersyn as an as a example of a real utopia, which, you know, as real utopians, we have to not get caught up in um, our embarrassment about uh, our excitement about this, the potential of this project. Um, we can't be um, so, you know, ultra-cynical about, oh, it would have just failed like everything else has ever failed before, right? Um, because it didn't fail because of any failures of the project. It failed because with, with a lot of help from the CIA and American corporations, it failed because the Pinochet's neoliberal regime's violent overthrow of the very popular Allende government killed The dreams of cybernetic democratic socialism in Chile, right? That's the reason it failed. And and I think it's important for us to look at an example like Cybersyn and and look at it as uh, something that we should be building on and envisioning real utopian dreams about what can we learn from it. I was going to say, it's important to let people know, too, that it wasn't just one attempted coup. It, this was something that took multiple
2: attempts. They tried to, I think they tried to organize a driver's strike. And when the centralized communication apparatus that they had in place set up with, with running logistics, supplies and food and things like that were still reaching towns and people, then they started kidnapping the truck mm-hmm. drivers and killing them. Mm-hmm. And still
1: yeah. didn't work. This wasn't just a one and done situation. They had multiple attempts. I think like the CIA was given something like twenty million dollars, mm-hmm. you know, in nineteen seventy-three. That's a lot of fucking money to overthrow yeah, they... one little small
2: South American country because that's how much if something like this were to work, would end up with America with egg on its face. Yeah, that's a that's a really good thing to point out because I don't think there's a lot of talk about that. They funded like uni- they funded union groups and they funded trade groups and Chile laid the like strike for like almost two years uh, before they were like, all right, we just gotta kill them. You know, they did the thing that judge uh, did where he's like, how much money you got in your strike fund? <laughs> you yeah, <know>? yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then. And they you, gave you guys really- just trying to do like a quick action or is this like a long-term siege? Uh mm-hmm. what yeah, what you know <laughs> what kind of money remember- are we playing around with here, Bob? <laughs> when
2: they uh when they had like you know a hearing on this, um and I remember I think Kissinger at the time, he was Secretary of State at the time, and he was like, um Death be upon
1: his name. Yeah. (laughs) He,
2: He basically was like, oh, you know, we just gave money to keep the groups and opposition and healthy political society alive. And it's like, okay. So that you could kill, of course. Like, yeah, I, you know, Kissinger is uh, evil. May he burn in hell forever um, until the end of history. And you know, the the strikes were huge. Like, they had a quarter of a million people at the peak of them, and brought life in in Santiago to a to grinding halt at the time. Right where thanks to the CIA, just like throwing money all the way up until like the month before the, uh, or attempting to throw money at them all the way up until like the month before the coup, right? I think there's, um, you know, New York Times had this quote, I think is a good one, where they're like, uh, they're talking about money and how the money filtered to the truckers union, even though that they had their request denied right before the coup to give more money to the truckers union, an unnamed official said, if we give it to A, then A gives it to B, and C, and D, then in a sense, it's true that D got it. But the question is, did we give it to A, knowing that D would get it?
1: <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> Come <Yeah>. on. <laughs> and, and I mean, and and that should give us even more uh, real utopian uh, uh, energy is here as well, is that the CIA, the, the extreme right-wing uh, military coup uh, and regime here, like they saw the threat of Allende, they saw the threat of something like Cyber Sin, they saw the threat of a potentially actually existing an operational uh, planning apparatus for the economy, not only for the economy, for and by the workers in the economy. They mm-hmm. saw that threat. And, and like Jeremy said, right? Like they went through so many different strategies and tactics here, trying to destroy it from the inside through these, these strikes by, by drivers, these kind of logistics and distribution strikes, you know, hitting those choke points. They tried so much uh, until what they had to do is essentially hit the nuclear option, right? Where they were like, Mm -hmm. fuck, like all of these attempts to destroy this from the inside in a kind of covert fashion, they're still not working right? Like, Allende's government is still, even after a a hard election, where they kind of lost some support, again, um, in large part because of these kinds of, like, CIA-funded groups and and stuff kind of running counter-propaganda against them, um, organizing groups against them. Even then, they were, like, this this government is, it's still too popular. It's too strong and it's going to, you know, the Cyberson thing is about to go live and we don't know what will happen if it goes live. And so what did they do? They hit that military button. They hit those missiles. Mm -hmm. They said, all right, fuck it. Bring in the jets. Bring in the artillery.
2: They used um, aerial power to do the coup on nine 11 the uh, this is the first 9 11.
1: Is that and true, actually, man? Was it on 9 yeah. 11? <laughs> it was
2: on 9 11. Oh, 9/11. <laughs> <shit>. yeah, dude. <laughs> we were just saying it was not, it was the first 9 11 because it was. It's, I mean, look, you know, one of my favorite ways to put it, I think, you know, credit to Chomsky is imagine if, like, imagine if we really compared it. Let's say that, like, Al Qaeda or Al Qaeda, you know, bombed the White House, you know, uh, killed the president did a military coup, killed you know, 5,200,000 people, tortured 700,000 people, then uh, turned Washington DC into a, uh, into a terror center, uh, turned the stadiums into you know, detention camps or into prisons, right? Um, then instigated from the terror center in DC, um, coups across the hemisphere, uh, murdered and assassinated more people they didn't like, and then brought in economists Let's call that, you know, in Chomsky's exploration of this, he calls them the Kondar boys, who then destroyed the economy, but were loved by the by the rest of the world, and then got Nobel Prizes, you know, like, if that happened, um, that would have uh, been insane. Uh, But that's what we did. You know, that's what was done to Chile. That was Mm -hmm. So it's It was a part of the U.S. policy of a threat of a good example, right? Or what Dean Atchison would call, you know, the threat of a good example, where it's not enough that some socialist experiment is not allowed to spread beyond borders, right, and is contained. You have to kill it because by attempting to do anything other than what the United States does, you threaten, you know, the underlying threat of violence that animates the Madison doctrine where we own this hemisphere. Uh, You know, the hegemony that we, you know, demand or, you know, demanded and pursued after the end of the Cold War. You have to do what we say, you know, what we say goes. Um, And it's it's insane. You know, I mean, the devastation that has been wrecked in Chile as a result of it. I mean, another example comes from Chomsky where, you know, he went to, um, you know, one of the major Andean mining areas. Right. And it's a desert that you just is, is is hard to really. Imagine there's no, there's nothing green, there's no water, it's just a flat with you know, like brownish sand area, howling wind. The mines are closed now, but I mean, just imagine, imagine what it would be like to work and live in that sort of spot. I mean, like that was also the site of very vicious uh, mining strikes. You know, in 1907, miners, the families, they struck for pennies a day you know, nothing, right? They marched down to uh, to Iquique, you know, so it's, uh, it's a town, you know, about 30 miles away. And um, they were welcomed by the mine owners. They were, you know, taken to a school. They were housed. They were allowed to have a meeting um, in the schoolyard, right? And while they were having the meeting, the authorities brought in troops and the troops machine-gunned them. And the death toll isn't known to this day because of how extreme the, the censorship is. I mean, that's like the sort of system that is, you know, being protected, uh, or, well, on the one hand, it's being revolted against when the socialist experiments try to come in. And there's is, and is also being a, an attempt to return to when the socialist experiment is overthrown, right? You know, except in that instance, it was British instead of the Americans that did it. But, I mean, we've done similar things across the world. And I think that that is, you know, the brutality of the systems that the socialists try to get away from is, is usually lost in the conversations, as is how horrible the capitalist alternatives are, not just because of how many people they kill, not just because of how horrible um, the consequences are for the people, right? But also because, like, when it's all said and done, when the terror campaigns end, when the assassination plots end, when the prisons close, permanently or fearfully, you've permanently shut off promising viable alternative route for human development because of something as stupid as profit.
1: This concept of the threat of a good example is dead on as well, because it's worth noting that uh, Salvador Allende was the first Marxist to be elected president in a liberal democracy in Latin America, right? America as the, you know, the standard bearer of liberal democracy Oh, they love it. They love. We, we love our democracy, don't we, folks? But mm-hmm. we can only tolerate a certain menu of options in that democracy. Not only within the U.S., but in any liberal democracy. And that's that's the whole point of the CIA is to enforce a set menu of options. Having a Marxist come in, elected on a on a broad mandate to reorganize the economy, uh, to to increase. The, the welfare of the society of people, that's too much to handle. It's too much to handle. Put a, an unfortunate endpoint on, on, on the Project Cybersyn and on Allende's experiment with democratic socialism, right? In its place, in the government's place, um, after this coup came a, a, a new era of brutal authoritarian neoliberalism. Um, informed, as Ed was saying, you know, through Chomsky, uh, informed by these shock doctrine policies of the Condor Boys or the Chicago Boys. The motherfucking Chicago Boys. uh, Were uh, a group of Chilean economists trained by Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago, and then enforced by the ruling military junta, right? Mark your calendars, 9-11, 1973. This is a birth point of neoliberalism. Right, this is you know well before Reagan and Thatcher um, really became the kind of uh, the faces of neoliberalism. Well before it's really started uh, taking off uh, in these kind of Western liberal democracies, Chile was a major inflection point for this. This was the natural experiment for neoliberal policies that would then be rolled out. Uh, across the world, really. The shock doctrine policies that Chile went through 20 years before they were then forced upon the post-Soviet bloc, right? Mm. Chile is a major experiment point for not only these ideas of kind of cybernetic democratic socialism, but then out of that brutal authoritarian neoliberalism. We can trace that all back to 1973. There's an absolutely wild-ass anecdote that uh, Medina starts the conclusion of her book with. Um, I'm going to read this passage in full. Quote, The military stopped work on Project Cybersyn after the coup and either abandoned or destroyed the work the team had completed. In some instances, Cybersyn's destruction was brutal and complete. One member of the military took a knife and stabbed each slide the graphic designers had made to project in the operations room. Other military officials adopted a more inquisitional approach. They summoned members of the project team, as well as other Chilean computer experts who had not been involved in the project, and questioned them about the Cybersyn system. The military failed to grasp the nuances of Beer's decentralized, adaptive approach to control, which ran counter to the idea of top-down control in the armed forces. Or, perhaps, they did understand Beer's approach to control, but saw little use in it. Th- this is some bizarro Luddite tactics at play <laughs> here, right? <laughs> <laughs> you've got you, You've got Pinochet's military generals literally just taking out knives and fucking stabbing them
0: computer screens tech. Just,
1: you know, blah, blah 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 just fucking stabbing it the, you know that that was the, this is the materialization of socialism I and mean, we just fucking it, oh it's stabbing it but then also doing like base like like these like like disappearing computer mm-hmm. experts and people mm-hmm. right who are like too dangerous, their knowledge is too dangerous, even if they didn't work on the system. I, I don't think anybody has in the complete perfect inversion um, actualized Luddism uh, in this way uh, <laughs> since the, the the like 1812 original Luddites. Right? We regret
2: to inform you, uh, Pinochet was a Luddite. He was not a good one. <laughs> we do not claim him. We have uh, excommunicated him from the group, from the brotherhood. The evidence is we need I- to find a different <laughs> word for it
1: because it's, it's bizarro Like yeah. you know, I, I've long said that no one has uh, class solidarity in, in capitalism like the ruling class. Right? No one actually uh, exercises. Class consciousness and and solidarity, like the ruling class, uh, in much the same way that bizarrely nobody actually exercised this like anti technology luddism, like a fucking military coup, like Pinochet, right? And 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 what that is is um, capitalism is extremely good at subsuming um, everything into itself, right? Like they see whether whether consciously or not they see the tactics and strategies of the working class things like solidarity things like mm. class consciousness things like striking out against the machineries and apparatuses of exploitation and extraction and what they do is they completely invert it and they turn it around on socialism they exercise solidarity against the working class they mm-hmm. exercise violent attacks against the technologies uh and ideals and visions of socialism just a fucking crazy capstone for the project cyberson uh to literally be stabbed to death smothered in yeah. its cradle pinochet and then like we were saying
2: earlier to then have computers no longer used for giving birth to what could have been a radically different society and instead just being used to coordinate the work of intelligence services and agencies, police, military forces, and and helping them cooperate, helping them, you know, uh, fine tune their killing machines, helping them, you know, better find and and surveil activists, dissidents, helping them export terror across the world to Iran, to Pakistan, to Libya, Malaysia, Malaysia, um, helping them figure out ways in which they could basically uh, never, ever let it happen ever again. I mean, this is like, you know, the, the, the murder of Chileans, the mass torture, um, the destruction, then yields a very different shadow, bizarro, big data, reality right where we need to gather real-time intelligence analyze it you know as Greg Grandin talks about it that article analyze it act as quickly and coordinate our action as fast as possible sometimes through Operation Condor or through uh, you know through the Condor operations um, to you know kill disappear over 100,000 Latin Americans and torture you know as many or more I mean this is horrible this is um uh, this is uh it's it's just horrifying, depressing to think about how we instead of cybernetics, you get like Operation Condor, right? You get the Condor Boys, who or the Condor Years, I guess. Instead of helping liberate people, use computer with computers, you instead figure out how to kill them with um, computers or coordinate their killers.
1: Yeah, and it, it should be said as well. I mean, c- cybernetics as well in, in its actual uses. Uh, McNamara's, you know, uh, secretary of defense during the Vietnam war, he was a fucking cybernetics fanboy, Mm -hmm. right? Like uh, a perfect example of, um, the kind of, uh, appropriation of these technologies and these sciences for the purposes of American empire. Right. right. You know, and, and of course, there, you know, the cybernetic, you know, as we've talked about the cybernetic systems used by whether it's Amazon or used by the Pentagon, um, you know, the cybernetic systems they use are, are created and organized in radically different ways. They corrupt the ideas of cybernetics that someone like Stafford Beer Um, or even Norbert uh, Wiener, uh, really, you know, talked about when they when they were actually creating these systems, right, creating things like the liberty machine, talking about the need for decentralization and participation and anti bureaucracy, what they did, you know, what Amazon, the Pentagon, all these fucking uh, uh, ghouls of American capitalism or an American empire have done is they they've, they've taken those technologies, and they've, uh, they've, they've marshaled them, corrupted them, uh, weaponized them, um, quite literally weaponized them towards towards their own ends. And they look instead like, you know, this, this radical top-down command and control, total information awareness uh, of the battle space, of the factory. That's what it looks like in practice. But, uh, but we cannot lose this history of cybernetic socialism, of Project Cybersyn. Um, to show that, like what American empire has done, what corporate capitalism has done, um, again is not not even to innovate these things, right? But to mm-hmm. steal them, to fucking corrupt them with their foul influence. You know, the ending of, of Greg's you
2: know piece, I think, drives home this point, right? He he says um, the coup should also be memorialized as a mark as marking a related historical turning point when cyber utopia transmuted into cyber terror. The technology was used not to increase real-time happiness onto complete bis, but to instill raw pain. Voltmeter dials wouldn't record people's satisfaction with the government's social welfare policies. They'd be hooked up to electrodes and attached to victims' bodies, a common Condor practice. Even before Condor was up and running, Dan Mitrioni, the U.S. agent stationed in uh, Brazil and Uruguay, is believed to have invented the infamous dragon's chair. An electric torture chair, uh, where for three years, the current Brazil, uh, president of Brazil, Demo Rousseff, uh, up for re-election this Sunday, which was written years, a few years ago, um, in a runoff vote was incarcerated in a military prison, stripped naked, bound upside down, and administered electric shocks to her breasts, inner thighs, and head. Uh, thus, with US-supplied computers and telexes, along with other equipment, Latin America's anti-communist terror states updated the Spanish Inquisition, to the digital era, creating a command economy of terror. Beautiful, beautiful uh, way to fuck up. To yeah, fuck up man. a beautiful thing. Uh,
1: well, I think that's going to wrap up our our dive into Project Cybersyn. Again, huge shout out to Ida Medina's work on this. Uh, I highly recommend everybody check out that book. It, it, it's well worth the time and it's necessary, right? We need to know this, we need to know about these experiments. We need to know about this kind of socialist innovation that these, these things are not only possible, but they uh, in, in, in many ways already existed um, and had great potential. When I, when I laid out the structure of this episode and the, the premium episode at the beginning, I lied. <laughs> I, there was just so much to get into around Cybersyn that I think we're just gonna cap off the free episode there. Which means that we just have a lot more of really interesting stuff to get into um, in the premium episode where, again, we're, we're going to dive into the, the kind of ideology uh, around like the Chicago boys, you know, because again, it wasn't just the the uh, Pinochet's military junta that came in and and enacted this authoritarianism, it was importantly an authoritarian neoliberalism, which formed a kind of natural experiment for the neoliberalism that we all still live with and have lived with for the past 50 years. And and so what we need to do is we really need to understand this idea of the socialist calculation debate, these neoliberal ideas that have so uh, effectively Wiped out or dismissed ideas of a planned economy, of a socialist economy. You know, there's this famous quote from Milton Friedman, who, you know, is he's the grandfather of the Pinochet regime, he's the grandfather of a lot that we are living with today. Um, And there's this famous quote by Milton Friedman where he says, right, like our purpose is uh, when there are crises to put our ideas on the table so that those are the ones that people reach for um, in crisis moments, right? This is this idea of never let a good crisis go to waste. This is coming from people like Milton Friedman, um, and so, what we need to do is we need to understand, but not, but, but, backtracking from Milton Friedman, we need to understand the, the theories and the arguments that have been so uh, successful from people in the in the Austrian school of economics. This fucking like hyper libertarian Cato Institute kind of bullshit uh, around like Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, right? These like originators of neoliberalism. Um, so you know what we'll do in the premium episodes, we'll get into that, and we'll use that as a jumping off point to rebut and debunk their arguments about uh, you know, the godliness of the price system, uh, mm-hmm. the free hand of the market, um, all of this kind of bullshit, uh, and talk about instead uh, ways in which we can build not Cybersyn 2.0, because that's not the goal here, but to build things that are are, uh, in its spirit, inspired by this real utopian experiment um, for uh, different systems and protocols for a socialist economy, and that there's so much exciting work going on um, around what those systems and what those ideas uh, need to look like. So join us later this week in the premium episode patreon.com slash this machine kills uh to get into that question of where do we go from here until then see y'all later